wake up, sweetheart. Hi, this is Grace. So I'm here today with Tim Van Orden from the YouTube channel Running Raw. Tim is one of my favorite creators. He always has something interesting to talk about. And recently he posted a video about professionalism in the workplace. And specifically, should you bring emotion into the workplace? And, you know, how do, how does that function? What does that look like? And, you know, is that really the healthy thing for people to do? So we're going to expand on that a little bit today and talk about topics around that. And I'm super excited that he invited me to speak with him today. And I think that we're going to have a really interesting conversation. So let me uh, let Tim say a little bit about himself. Take it away, Tim. Hi, Grace. So the reason that I'm inviting you into this conversation today or asking you to be a part of this conversation is that I think there is a, a culture of what most people call professionalism that is unhealthy to the individuals in that culture, regardless of how effective the business might be. And I know this is a field or a space that you work in. And mm -hmm. your goal is to eventually transition entirely into the world of YouTube yes. and leave that world behind. And I think <laughs> many of the issues that you deal with on a daily basis are part of why we're having this conversation. So yeah, absolutely. I thought uh, it'd be great to have you in this discussion. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Especially since ASMR really is about being compassionate with people. It's about reaching out to people. It's about helping people to feel good. Yeah, so it absolutely. Yeah, there's. I don't think there's an ASMR artist out there who is intending on causing harm. <laughs> no, I would hope not. <laughs> Generally, I think it's a rather compassionate lot. Yeah, it is. It's an amazing community, um, and I'm so lucky to be a part of it. And yeah, the the work that we do um, in the ASMR community is really about. Um, it's really stems from compassion. Um, you know, we. <clears throat> help people with PTSD, we help people with depression and anxiety disorders, people who um, really have tried everything um, and don't sometimes don't have any other place to turn to. And um, it's really an honor to be able to work in this field and to help people. And to your previous point, you're right. Um, one of the reasons why I am looking to transition into the arts full time is because I feel like it really allows me to have a full expression of my emotions and my compassion. And it's a way to help people, um, I think, in a more effective manner than what I'm able to do um, in the business world. Yeah. Well, you're meeting people where they are rather than saying that you have to meet these standards before you can play with me or even communicate with me. Exactly. exactly. Or before we can work together or have any kind of relationship, you have to be up to this level. Right, um, exactly. and Or don't show up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really is, can be very black and white at times. And, um, you know, one of the challenges that I've had is that, you know, I've been in management positions for quite a few years now. And there's this standard that you have to remain separate, you have to remain detached, you can't become emotionally involved with your employees, you really shouldn't even try to get to know them as people outside the workplace, outside their work function. Um, and that's kind of the gold standard so that you can be objective or that you can get the work done in the most effective manner. And, you know, as someone who is, you know, a really compassionate person, really empathetic person, that's been very difficult for me. Um, and I was also uh, worked in the HR field for a number of years. And, 
you know, that's the department that everyone comes to with their problems and their issues. And it was very difficult for me to have to turn people away or refer them to an outside employee assistance program hotline instead of trying to help them deal with it right then and there. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of challenges uh, when it comes to personal interactions and emotions in the workplace. Yeah, it's a hot topic. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in the corporate world. It's also showing up in uh, the medical field or healthcare, I should say. Yes. Where patients are getting less and less personal care from those that they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are certain HMOs that are mandating that doctors spend less and less time with each patient uh, just to move things along and look at, keep an mm-hmm. eye out on the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a timely um, statement that you're making because I was actually on a Discord chat with my patrons uh, yesterday, and one of them is in the healthcare field, and we were actually talking about that specifically. Um, this person was saying how, you know, he was getting ready to work an 18-hour shift, um, wow. you know, which is awful. <laughs> And not healthy. No, it's not (laughs) healthy at all. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about is how, you know, not only does that impact his health and his well-being, but it also impacts the patients and his co-workers. Um, You know, people make more mistakes when they're tired. You know, they they make more mistakes when they're not feeling well and they don't have, you know, quality personal interactions with people because they're just trying to function. Um, And, you know, it really is detrimental. And, you know, it has to do with funding, it has to do with understaffing, you know, there's so many kind of underlying, um, larger social issues that play into this. But yeah, it's, I think it's happening across multiple industries, but healthcare specifically, I think is a really big one. Yeah, and it's not just that they make mistakes, but they're going to judge other people and work and situations very differently mm-hmm. depending on how long they've been working. There are quite a few studies done now on judges and parole where they've shown that if you're up for parole first thing in the morning after the judges had breakfast and they haven't been sitting on the bench long or hearing many cases, you're, I think it, the statistic, I'll have to look this up, but I think it's like you have a 60% chance of getting parole. Oh my goodness. But... If you go up just before lunch, Mm -hmm. when the judge has been sitting there for quite a few hours, they're starting to get hungry, Mm. your chances go to zero. And that's just a few hours. We're not talking about an 18-hour shift. We're talking about just a few hours and how that affects how the judge sees the situation, how they listen to the case, Mm -hmm. and how they reflect on the person. Because what ends up happening is they take their own physical state. They take the fact that I'm feeling hungry, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling bored, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling aggravated, and our brains are built to then map that onto the world that we see that we're interacting with. Mm -hmm. So the judge says, I'm feeling this way unconsciously. They're not, you know, verbally saying this, but their body is saying to them, I don't feel good and there's a person in front of me, they probably have something to do with it. Oh, wow. This is the way our brains are built. And there's a lot of research on this Mm -hmm. now. So what they're doing is they're trying to get judges to take shorter uh, stints on the bench or to make sure that they have snacks so Mm -hmm. they're not waiting for lunch, Um, changing the different types of cases that come up at different times. Mm -hmm. But people don't realize that this is happening. People think that they're always in control of their behavior Mm -hmm. and their perceptions, and they're not. Right. 
So what started this conversation is that people think that there is a, a, a threshold that you walk through when you enter the workplace, mm -hmm. that, okay, I'm a human being until I walk through that door. The moment I walk through that door, a professional, me, leaves emotions behind. Mm -hmm. I don't take them with me. I don't take my feelings. I don't take whatever happened to me. I don't take my drama. I don't take my emotions. Mm -hmm. They stay outside that door. But the reality is that's just not true. It doesn't work like that. Right. Uh, you may not consciously be attending to feelings or attending to what happened to you earlier, but unconsciously your body is stewing in it. Oh, yeah. And most of your brain remains <clears throat> stewing in it regardless of whether or not you're consciously thinking about it or talking about it. So I think there's a, a lot of, um, I should say, there's a lack of understanding mm -hmm. in how the brain and body function, you know, especially when a judge, some of the smartest, wisest people in our culture, the people that have given, been given the, the position of judging other human beings or, you know, sitting in judgment, mm -hmm. that's not a position to take lightly. And they're just as prone to this as everyone else. Right. Wow, that's really scary. Yeah, so it's not intellect. It has no. nothing to do with your conscious intellect at all. Wow. It's completely beneath the radar. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to address this. Yeah. So, I, yeah, go ahead, Grace. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, that's, wow, that's an amazing <clears throat> statistic about those judges. Um, yeah, it's frightening. Yeah, very <laughs> frightening. Very frightening, especially when our criminal justice system, we already have a two-tiered criminal justice system, and it's already skewed, you know, to really um, be more punitive towards lower income people and people in minority groups. And then to have that thrown on top of it. Um, wow, that's... Yeah. Well, that's actually a double whammy that I didn't mention mm -hmm. is that it's not just that they become uh, less likely to give out parole, but they also become more prejudiced. Mm. So as the day goes on, their prejudice becomes more and more obvious. Oh, my goodness. Or uh, outwardly affecting their behavior. It almost sounds like they need so, to work four-hour shifts with like a 30-minute break and then switch out. <laughs> or or be educated in this is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Understand that, okay, I'm feeling right. this. Oh, it's hunger. Mm -hmm. It's not that person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my butt is getting sore from sitting in this chair for too long. You know what? Five-minute recess. I'm going to take mm -hmm. a little bit of walk. I'm going to get a snack. Then we'll come back and, yeah. and do the next case. Yeah. Well, you know, but instead it's like we have to rush through the cases. Right. Well, you know, and that, you know, that again, even that particular situation where you have judges that feel pressured to get through so many cases, you know, that really has a lot to do with larger systemic issues. You know, we, yeah. we, you know, over arrest, we over prosecute our system is just clogged with people who are really there for very small, petty things that, you know, there's a lot of debate about in society right now, one of them being the legalization of marijuana, um, you know, another one being the criminalization of sex work. Um, you yeah. know, there, there are so many, I think, issues that could be addressed in a different way rather than running them through the criminal justice system. And, you know, one of the other thing that's, things that happens in this country is that we use the criminal justice system as a de facto mental health system. So... We have well, a lot of... sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Baby, we just get people off the streets. We don't actually right. attend to their mental health. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's not good for anyone because it doesn't really address the core issue. Um, and, you know, again, we're kind of impacting lower income people, minorities, you know, in much larger percentages. 
And so the criminal justice system itself is, you know, overtaxed, overcrowded, just like what we were talking about with the healthcare system. Um, so, you know, and this happens in corporate America too. You know, people are really pressured to not pay attention to their physical bodies at work. So, you know, you're hungry, too bad, push through it, work through lunch. Um, you know, you're, you're tired and you need to take a little walk around the block or you need to just take a little mental break. Too bad. You know, we have to get this out by three o'clock. Push through it. Work through it. Have some more coffee. Have some more Red Bull. You know, have a stimulant. Have some junk food. Um, so, you know, people are really pushed to be machines, basically, um, rather than to be humans. <clears throat> Excuse Livestock. Me. Rather than to be humans. Yeah. Yeah, we become a form of livestock, even yes. the term human resources. Yes. Uh, you're not a human, you're a human resource, and you right. are replaceable. Right. Which is where you and I started in this conversation mm -hmm. the other day when you yeah. commented on my video. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the fact that people are seen as replaceable stock. You are not an individual mm -hmm. that is unique. We can easily replace you in this mm -hmm. position. Yeah. So we don't want any of your humanity. We don't want any of the things that make you unique mm -hmm. to show up in the workplace. We just want you to fill the role of the job description. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Right. Yeah. Can, how fast can you that's type? All, that's all we care about. Yeah. How fast can you type? How fast can you 10 key? <clears throat> you know, can you do this math that we need you to do? Or, you know, can you do this line job that we need you to do? Um, yeah. So it's really concerning. And, you know, there, there have been some efforts, I think, a lot of it related to health and safety. I think a lot of health and safety issues have driven um, workplace regulations about lunch breaks and, and um, you know, work breaks and um, a limit on the number of hours that people can work in a day. But, you know, companies are always trying to find ways around that or ways to maximize the time that they're legally allowed to, to have you. Um, and so, yeah, there's just, there's a lot... A lot of um, a lot of things that go into these toxic environments that we've created. All right, so I want to break this down mm -hmm. a little bit and look at some components and really get to the matter of what does it mean to be a professional? What does it mean to be emotional? Mm -hmm. Are there good emotions? Are there bad emotions? And what is the most mature thing to do in the workplace? Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, well, I want to unpack that and look at some potential definitions mm -hmm. and see if there's an alternative. Yeah. So first off, uh, something that we had mentioned in some comments the other day was the idea of conscious capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is a term that is starting to spread. Uh, it also goes by the name the social good movement, mm -hmm. where companies um, or entrepreneurs are saying, yes, I want to make some money, but I also want to do good in the world. I want to make sure that people love coming to work and that what we do, the products that we create actually benefit people. Yeah. So that movement is starting to grow. Mm. But even so, I'm not sure that it's entirely inside of the conversation that I'd like to have with you. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be very much outward focused. Mm -hmm. um, 
like, okay, we're doing good in the world, but hurry up and meet the deadline. Right. And kind of interesting, I've actually been um, involved with some companies who had those type of programs where, you know, they had one day a month or one day a quarter that was dedicated to, um, you know, kind of going out and doing good in the larger community. Um, But a lot of these events are actually mandatory forced events (laughs) that employees have to attend. So they don't really have a choice about what charity or what organization they're supporting. It may even be something that directly conflicts with their personal values or morals, but they're forced to participate in this, you know, kind of like a forced work day. And, you know, everybody gets loaded up in vans or whatever, and they get driven to the site and dropped off and they do their, you know, sort of community service work, um, you know, and then they leave. And, you know, it would be interesting to see how much of an impact that actually has on the community um, because it is is very periodic, yeah. Um, and then also, a lot of times these events are, they're really perceived very negatively by employees, you know, maybe because of their personal morals or beliefs, um, maybe because, you know, they would rather have a day off than another day of sort of forced charity. Um, I think there are other ways that employees could be served. And I think there are better ways the, the community could be served. Um but, well, and what is a community? Right, exactly. What is what a community? Is yeah, because it's made up of individuals. So if mm-hmm. the individuals providing the work mm-hmm. are not empowered in that moment, mm-hmm. then what is this thing called community? Right, and a lot of times um, the the larger community that's supposed to be served isn't even the community that the employees live in or you know function in mm. on a daily basis. Um, so it you know it means even less to them at that point. Yeah, very top down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I think a big part of this is that you have CEOs with good intentions trying mm-hmm. to control things from the top. Yes. Yeah. And if you if we break down some definitions here, if you look at the word capital or capitalism, uh, it capital means of the head. It's an adjective that became a noun. So in German, kaput is head, and that's where capital comes from. It's the same root. Oh, interesting. So capital is of the head or Mm -hmm. the thing that you put first, Mm -hmm. which is not ironic when you think about (laughs) it because capitalism is about putting the head first and leaving the heart behind. Yeah, that's true. And I'm not really a fan of that metaphor Mm -hmm. because it's all the head or it's the whole body and being. There's not really a separation like we think there is. Mm -hmm. But it's a useful metaphor in this sense uh, because when you go to work, it's like we just want your rational, cognitive, logical, trained being to Mm -hmm. show up. We don't want the rest of you to show up. Right. You need to put them in a prison while they're here. Yeah. Um, So the heart is not in this work for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a term when I was uh, getting ready to get on this call. Mm -hmm. I thought about compassionalism. Oh, nice. Or to be compassional. Yeah. Capitalism is the condition of having capital. Mm -hmm. So compassionalism would be the condition of having compassion. Nice. So it's a a fun idea to play with, Mm -hmm. but who are you in the moments at Mm -hmm. work? 
You know, right. what is the work that you're doing? What are you up to? Why are you doing this? Yeah. And I think that in the corporate world and in the business world and in the larger capitalist world, we get lost in this top-down, head-centric, what are we doing? Right. And we don't look at why we're doing it, mm -hmm. which again, in that metaphor, is more heart-centric. Why? Why does this matter? Yeah. You know, yeah. I think the why is more important than the what. And if you don't know what the why is, then you're just going to get in trouble with the what. Because the what could have a really negative impact. Right. Well, and, you know, a lot of corporations are intentionally compartmentalized so that, you know, the ground level workers really are never cued in as to why they're doing the things that they're doing. Um, yeah. You know, there's not a lot of transparency. There's not a lot of communication. <clears throat> and um, I think a lot gets lost from, like you said, the potentially good intentioned um, people at the top, you know, by the time it trickles all the way down through the, you know, multiple layers of management all the way down to the ground. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of times if you would pull people aside and say, you know, what is the mission of our company? Why are you doing this task? Like, what is the larger picture here? They wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, and that's terrible because if people don't have ownership and feel like their work has meaning, you know, it's it's very difficult for them to do it well and to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Um, and also you lose a lot of valuable information and input because, you know, the people on the ground know how to do their jobs better than the people at the top do. They know what the pitfalls are, where the problems might be, and they could even maybe offer some creative solutions. And a lot of times they're just not even asked. Well, and that's important, but at the same time, we're not just an organization. It's not just about this abstract mission. We're mm -hmm. human beings in a relationship. And right. I think people fail to see the relationship. Yes. So we interact with each other only through the mission. If we're lucky, if we know what the mission is, mm -hmm. then this node me and this node you interact at the point of mission, mm -hmm. but we don't interact with each other. Yeah, you're correct. And I think that, so there's, there's this separation, like you're connected mm -hmm. to the mission, I'm connected to the mission, everybody's connected to the mission in a good company, mm -hmm. but we're not connected to each other. Correct. Yeah, because and we're actively discouraged from that. We're discouraged from that. So mm -hmm. therefore, we don't really ever develop a relationship, but we're surrounded by human beings. Mm -hmm. And we are social animals that our whole bodies and brains and our cognitive minds are built to relate. That's what we're mm -hmm. built for. And we're not allowed to. Right. I think compounding that is the fact that people are actively separated from their social s support networks while they're at work. So, you know, you're not allowed to have your cell phone out. You're not allowed to take personal calls. You're not allowed to leave the premises a lot of the times. Or yeah. your lunch break is not long enough for you to go to your home and come back. Um, and it was kind of interesting. They've done some studies um, in the HR world where they've looked at employee satisfaction and employee productivity. If they're given an opportunity to reach out to their social networks while they're on the job, so if they have a chance to talk to their children at lunch or they have a chance to just literally for five minutes look at Facebook or look at Twitter, check their email, if they feel like they can connect with their personal life, they're actually more satisfied and more productive. Um, yeah. But these are things that we kind of actively keep from people. And then we also deny them the opportunity to connect with 
the people they spend the most time with, which is their coworkers. Yeah, so their family, yeah, you're sort in of, a sense. Yeah, you're sort of left in this, you know, kind of abyss all on your own. And it can be really lonely and, and really difficult. Yeah, it's basically you're surrounded by avoidant attachers. Mm-hmm. See, if you look at attachment yeah. theory, there are three main types of attachment. There's secure attachers, which uh, they feel secure in the world because partly because of their genetics, partly because of their upbringing. They just they feel secure whenever they're around human beings, other human mm-hmm. beings. Yeah. And then you have two types of insecure. You have ambivalent, and their caregivers were sometimes hot, sometimes cold, sometimes mm-hmm. affectionate, sometimes distant. So... The child never learns to trust, especially if that child is sensitive or introverted. They're Mm -hmm. going to develop what they call an ambivalent, insecure attachment style. And the third type is also insecure, but avoidant. Mm -hmm. Their primary caregiver or caregivers was distant most of the time. So they learned that they were on their own. I can't rely on this person. Even though I'm a tiny child, I'm not getting what I need. I'm getting enough food, obviously, because I'm not dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have enough shelter to keep me safe. But other than that, my needs are not being met, especially my need to relate, my need to feel connected. Those needs are not being met. So the brains of these children develop very differently, and they learn to push other people away. And what we've created in the modern workplace is this massive uh, sea of avoidant attachment where everybody is like, I have to avoid relating to you. I have to avoid mm-hmm. connecting with you. I'm going right. to keep you at a professional distance. And the scariest thing is if you look at the mental health field, and one of the reasons that I've become a coach and not a therapist is that a therapist has to keep a professional boundary up. Right. They have to say, I'm not your friend. I am not your lover. I am not your partner. I do not care about you. I cannot care about you. And I will not let you care about me. I will actively encourage you not to bond or attach with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have therapists, like the people that are supposed to be there for you. And essentially what they're saying is, Mm -hmm. I'm a brick wall. Yeah. You can bounce off of me, but that's it. Mm -hmm. I won't let you in. Uh, yeah. So we are surrounded by this professional avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, and this actually um, kind of brings up an interesting topic about um, ethics, professional ethics and professional societies, um, you know, that people are, are a member of. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that you brought up specifically was therapists. So I have a friend who's actually um, a therapist and, you know, she struggles so much because people who get into that field, they yeah. are so compassionate and caring. That's why they got into it. Exactly. That's <laughs> why they got into it, right? But then now they have to turn into these cold, uncaring, you know, detached machines. Yeah. And one of the things that just absolutely breaks her heart is when she's out in public because of the professional oath that she's taken and her professional ethics that she's yeah. been, you know, kind of told what they should be. If she sees a client out in public, she literally has to pretend that they're invisible. Yeah, she can't acknowledge them. That she yeah. can't even acknowledge them. Yeah. Um, and she said the only way that she can is if they see her and approach her and start to talk to her. And then she can, you know, say hello. But and then she's get still, out of the conversation. <clears throat> as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's just, it's horrible. Um, yeah. And know, what is and, the message that she's 
giving, <clears throat> not her personally, but in mm-hmm. that situation, the message is, I'm not a safe place. Right. And, and I don't care. Right. You're on your own. <laughs> yeah. And so then how, you know, how does the therapy, how can the therapy be effective if yeah. your patient can't trust you and they don't feel safe with you and, yeah. you know, they don't feel seen or heard by you? That's um, a huge problem. And it's not just in therapy. Um, yeah. You know, supervisors and managers have to go through it as well. And, you know, the more... Education as well. Yes. Yeah. And the more advanced you get, the more degrees you have, you know, the more opportunity that you have to join these professional societies, um, you know, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or, you know, a therapist, you know, there there are these societies that you have to join. And a lot of times your professional designation requires that you be a member of these societies yeah. in order to keep it. Um, and you're required to go through professional education so many hours every year with these professional societies. And one of the things that they, you know, really pound home is their code of ethics and their code of conduct. Um, and, you know, most of the time it requires this detachment. So, you know, this is what we're requiring of our professionals. What we tell them makes them a professional, makes them stand apart from, yeah. you know, the, the general workforce. And, yeah, it's very unhealthy for, for everyone and, involved. You know, it's fascinating now that I'm thinking about this. If you look at what's happening in modern health care mm-hmm. and if you look at what's happening in modern mental health care, in regular health care, the doctors are being encouraged. They're being encouraged now to uh, have better bedside manner, mm-hmm. even if it's something that they just put on. Even if it's fake, if it's phony, ask a few questions, spend a minute and a half right. asking the person questions about their life, their kids, whatever. Uh, something to make it feel like there's some kind of connection because mm-hmm. they're often criticized for not being emotionally engaged, not caring, mm-hmm. not being attached. So if a medical doctor is working on a physical ailment that you have, they are encouraged to develop an attachment with you, or at least mm-hmm. the appearance of an attachment. Right. They are encouraged to show somehow, superficially or otherwise, that they care. Mm. But people in the mental health field, where people need that care so much more, they're desperate for it, these practitioners are not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. It's totally backwards. Yeah, completely. <laughs> totally backwards. Yeah. Yep. And I understand why they're doing it, mm-hmm. but I think there's a better way to go about it. But right. as you said, because you have these large professional associations or organizations, the wheels turn very mm-hmm. slowly. Yes. And you've got a lot of people that are really old that are running the show, and it doesn't change until they die. You know? Well, and it's kind of interesting because um, a lot of <clears throat> these societies formed um, – you know, as a way to legitimize the profession or yeah. to standardize the skills that were required yeah. for the mm-hmm. profession, really to protect the public. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that plays into this is um, professionalism being used as a risk mitigation tool by businesses or um, yes. you know, industries. Yes. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, consumer lawsuits or employee lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Um it has to do with, you know, really protecting their profits. So it's a profit motivation rather yeah. than, you know, a human motivation. Yeah. Um, and so I think that plays into it as well is that it is the easy road 
to use as a risk mitigation tool. Mm -hmm. Because if everything is standardized and everybody acts one way, then when, you know, it all hits the fan, um, you can go into the courtroom and say, well, you know, we always do it this way and this is how everybody acts. And, you know, you kind of, it's a better defense, I guess. So, you know, but again, that's motivated by profit. Mm -hmm. You know, let's protect the assets of the business. Um, So... And yeah. where that, where I think that falls apart, and I totally understand why that's in place, and it is mm-hmm. useful. And yes, I'm not it is. completely trying to put it aside. I simply think that it needs to be modified at this point mm-hmm. because what has now happened uh, in the modern world of advertising, where every uh, ad agency has a team of neuroscientists mm. and cognitive psychologists and behavioral <laughs> psychologists working on their staff now. Yeah. Like if you don't have a PhD in some kind of brain science, you're probably not going to get into an ad agency mm-hmm. because right. they need to know how their message is impacting behavior and mm-hmm. cognitive function and mm-hmm. how to trigger a dopamine release, how to yeah. trigger desire or lust or craving. Mm-hmm. So when we have advertising universally around us it's omnipresent it's so Mm -hmm. hard to get away from advertising and it is so compelling and so effective and the message is again and again and again we care Mm -hmm. we want to help you right when that message is so strong the only positive uh data that people are getting that someone cares Mm -hmm. are the ad agencies That really just represent profit. That's all they represent. Like, how do we get profit into the machine? How do we Mm -hmm. get profit into the corporate world Mm -hmm. by pretending to care? We're the only people that care. Right. Where else are you going to see people caring so much about you other than in an advertisement? Yeah. Oh, and this actually brings up another issue because, you know, the whole point of, you know, selling all of these products and, you know, really what they're selling is an experience, a feeling. You know, if you buy these jeans, it'll make you feel this way or it'll give you this experience, right? It's not the actual thing itself. But it's another way to numb people out, um, to, you know, get them in debt, to get them addicted, um, which then means that they make a more complicit workforce. And also they're more reliant on these jobs because they have to have the money. So, um, you know, I think they work kind of hand in hand, right, to create a more complicit, compliant, docile, addicted workforce, um, numbed out. True. Just numbs people out. But that's only if we believe that a corporation is a real thing. It's not. (laughs) Well, Citizens United would disagree. (laughs) Citizens United, but Citizens United is not a real thing either. No, it's not. It's simply an agreement. It's a conversation. So what it comes down Mm -hmm. to is that there are human beings in corporations in Mm -hmm. high places. There are human beings in institutions with a Mm -hmm. great deal of power. There are human beings that have a lot of money that want to have influence, like Citizens United. Mm -hmm. And essentially what's happening is human beings don't know how to deal with their own feelings, so they try to control the environment around them Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to deal with their feelings. Mm Mm-hmm. So someone that is greedy, someone that is willing to throw a million people under the bus in order to make another $50 million, Mm -hmm. that person isn't necessarily an evil person. 
Right. They just don't know how to deal with their own feelings. So it's all the same conversation. Mm-hmm. So if the person at the top doesn't know how to deal with their feelings and the people in the middle don't know how to deal with their feelings and the people in the bottom don't know how to deal with their feelings, you get the system that we've currently got. Yeah. So what it all comes back to is helping people to understand what it means to be a human being mm-hmm. and how to deal with feeling, how to deal with emotion, and how to deal with the narrative mm-hmm. that combines the two into a story about my life, good or bad. Yeah. And everybody's doing it at all levels in the hierarchy. It's not like the people at the top are somehow immune to this. Oh, no. They're, no. they're just as stuck <laughs> in that hamster wheel as everybody else. Yeah. So by reaching humans, if we get this conversation out to humans, maybe it'll go through all levels of the hierarchy. Yeah, that would be amazing. You know, <laughs> if, if someone is afraid of scarcity, of course they're going to be greedy. Yeah. Because they don't know how to deal with that feeling of things being taken away from them. Right. You know, they right. don't know how to deal with an environment that looks ignorant and unpredictable. Like, oh my God, this, these people are just ignorant and unpredictable. I don't know mm-hmm. what to do. That's frightening. I need to somehow control them. So they don't know how to deal with their own fear. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to deal with volatility. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's persistent throughout all levels of class, ethnicity, race, gender, whatever, everything, just humans. We yeah. just, nobody's teaching us how to deal with our feelings. Right. And the people that should, the people in the mental health field, they're like, okay, well, I can, you know, dispassionately talk about mm-hmm. how to deal with your feelings, but I'm not going to feel them with you. Yeah. I'm not going to model that experience for you, with you, mm-hmm. next to you, holding your hand compassionately. So, yeah, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> No, I just, um, I'm just thinking about employee assistance programs because, you know, that really has been, uh, it's kind of interesting. I was actually looking into this before we got on this call together and, um, you know, I had experience with employee assistance programs and, you know, knew they had been around for quite a while. Um, but I was curious sort of how they started, what the origin of it was, what the motivation was to bring this, um, care for employees' emotional lives and personal lives into the workplace yeah. when everything else that we do is trying to get it out, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, which is it? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that kind of goes back to that, um, the, uh, the avoidance, you know, attacher. So, you know, it's like on yeah. and off again. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. You get yeah. one message in this department, <laughs> you get another message in this department. Right, right. Like human resources is like the, you know, the touchy-feely heart <clears throat> of the company, yeah. supposedly. Um, but that's not what actually really happens because they are actually taught that they have to be the most detached, almost like yeah. therapists. Yeah. Um, so Unbiased. Yeah, exactly. Unbiased. And, you know, they, they usually are the people that are the most compassionate, just like therapists. And so, you know, you, you kind of have that same professional conflict with HR people that, you know, you do kind of in the therapy world. But these employee assistance programs, they actually started right uh, during the temperance movement in the U.S. And they started as alcohol programs um, huh. in manufacturing companies because alcohol use was causing a lot of industrial accidents. So people would have a beer at lunch, they'd come back to the factory and they'd, you know, cause a problem. 
Yeah. And for years, all the way until the 1950s, um, it was actually, they were alcohol programs within these companies. Um, Interesting. You know, yeah. And it, it was to treat addiction. It was to make sure that alcohol use, you know, in in the workplace was completely, you know, banned. And then they sort of morphed into something else, you know, started to treat other issues. And now it's become so broad and such a business. <laughs> you know, everything's been externalized to third-party vendors. You sort of hand an employee a phone number or an email, you know, a, a website, and everything is done electronically or over the phone. So there's no more human contact in it anymore. Yeah. So, you know, it's supposed to be somewhere that they can turn to to kind of deal with all their personal issues that are affecting their work because the ultimate goal is to make sure that the workplace is safe and productive and that employees aren't missing a lot of work. So it's to deal with absenteeism as well. So, you know, it does still come back to a profit motive, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's like these, you know, everything's being shoved back outside and, you know, even the people that are supposed to be okay, here's the number, you know, we can't be compassionate with you, but here's people that can be compassionate with you. And it still ends up being a phone or a computer, yeah. Yeah. you know. And um, You're not safe in this environment, but here's an environment that you might find safety. Right, yeah. And when you get your shit together, then you can mm -hmm. come back and hang out with us. Exactly, yeah. Or <laughs> get your shit together on your own time, here's how, and we expect you back here at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, yeah. and I don't want to hear yeah. any more about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting that, you know, that and like you said, you know, corporations consist of human beings and, you know, people do have compassion and, you know, most people are good um, and they want to do good. And, you know, while that may end up getting misguided because of their own issues or their own you know, lack of education about this area. Um, I think people want to do good. <laughs> so, you know, uh, they just have to be shown how, you know, and, well, and a way to make it work within a business environment because, you know, you do still have to get things done. It can't just turn into, you know, one big, you know, therapy session at work. Um, well, but it's not about yeah. a therapy session. It's, first of all, understanding what are we doing? What are we up to? Mm -hmm. Because from the top all the way to the bottom, if the person at the top is dealing with issues, they're going to make decisions that affect everybody beneath them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're often making those decisions in the midst of intense emotion because they have a big decision to make. Yeah. Now it affects everybody, but maybe it's the wrong decision. And why are we now doing this? But we can't question it. It came from the top. Right. And just like in the military, you know, the general puts out the order. It's a terrible order, but he can't admit that. Now mm -hmm. people's lives, he's lost thousands of lives. Mm -hmm. And it was a gigantic mistake. He made right. a bad call and people yeah. paid the price for it. Yeah. And also a lot of times they get so far in and so committed and so much money has been spent yeah. or lives have been admit. lost. Yeah. They can't admit it and back out and try something new. Yeah. So they just keep pushing forward. Yeah. Well, that's and called that the sunk cost bias. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> they, they look at the sunk cost and like, well, mm -hmm. we can't go back now. We ha I don't care what the collateral damage is. We're right. Too much invested in this. Yeah. Yeah. So, Grace, do you have any closing comments? This has been a, a fun conversation. Yeah, it has um, been. A lot, lots coming up. Anything that's really kind of been begging to come forth? Or are you good? 
No, I think I think we covered a lot. Um, and yeah, I think this is still I think there's still even more to talk about. This is still an ongoing conversation. Yes. So yeah. I'm very interested to see um, what your listeners and my listeners have to say about this and um, just to see what what other tangents we can go off on in this conversation, yeah. um, because I think it's a really important one and it's one that should happen more than once. Yeah. Um, and so, also, yeah, I just want to, I want to mm-hmm. say as a disclaimer before we close off that mm-hmm. sometimes it's really easy to be loose with language and to generalize mm-hmm. a bit or to make it seem simpler than it actually mm-hmm. is. And things are complex. Yes. So yeah. just because you or I might have said something loosely at any mm-hmm. particular moment, it, that doesn't mean that that's the end all be all or that the mm-hmm. conversation is closed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I consider all of this to be an open loop. Uh, mm-hmm. to be expanded on. And I hope that there are lots of tangents that arise. And if somebody is offended or upset, fantastic. Right. That's a new conversation. That's <laughs> exactly. a new thing to unpack. Great. Let's let's exactly. talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm definitely talking from my own experience here um, because that's yeah. all that I can do. And, you know, while I have been to business school, I do have advanced degrees. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience out in that world. Um, you know, it, this is all just my own personal perspective. I'm here as an individual, not as yeah. some business expert representing yeah. any organization or, you know, institution. Um, so I'm just happy that we could have this conversation and, and you know, get it started. So thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate you it. You are very welcome. It's been my yeah. pleasure. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that you really enjoyed that conversation with Tim. Um, It was so much fun. And I think there's a lot to talk about here still. So let me know what you think down in the comments below. And let's just keep the conversation going. And be sure to check out Tim's channel, Running Raw. Um, He has some amazing content over there. And I'll go ahead and link that down below. And I hope you all have a great day. Bye.